Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Where does the conflict in Sudan stand after eight months? The Rapid Support Forces says it's in control of the second largest city. But the fighting shows no sign of ending and there's no political settlement on the horizon. So what does it mean for Sudan's future? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Okay, let's bring in our guests. Hamid Khalafala is a researcher and policy analyst specializing on Sudan's constitution building. You're joining us from an undisclosed location today. In Doha is Alan Boswell, the International Crisis Group's project director for the Horn of Africa, And in Washington, D.C., David Shin is a former U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission in Sudan. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Hamid, I want to go to you first. How significant is the capture of Wad Madani by the RSF? It's very significant indeed. Uh, So mainly the RSF were advancing in Khartoum and in the Darfur region, uh, and both had strategic uh, kind of purposes uh, Khartoum, obviously, the capital where the army is based uh, or has been based before they tried to relocate to Port Sudan after most of the capital was captured uh, by the rapid support forces. And therefore, it is their traditional base uh, where they, you know, get sources, could uh, get resources in terms of fighters and so on, but also get supplies uh, through the borders with Chad and, and DRC. Uh, so that, you know, in so many ways made sense. Uh, but now the advancement towards Medani, particularly, uh, that was, you know, uh, a safe haven for uh, IDPs from, from Khartoum, uh, particularly, and so on, uh, kind of shows that they're trying to advance towards the entire country and to capture the entire country. So it shows that, you know, the significance uh, of, of, of the, adva- the significance of the advancements stems from them going and, and, and conquering new uh, grounds. Uh, and it's kind of changing the dynamics. I think for the past uh, eight months uh, and so on, we were arguing and discussing who has the upper hand, uh, the military uh, or the paramilitary mm. rapid support forces. And there goes the answer now uh, with the rapid support forces advancing into new ground. Uh, you know, Medani is the fifth uh, base, uh, military base uh, that falls uh, and gets captured by the rapid support forces. Uh, and it kind of shows how the dynamics are changing okay. in favor uh, of the Iraq support forces. Well, Hamid, you're right. I can't count the number of times since the beginning of this war in the last eight months that I've asked who's winning the war, who's losing, who has more control, etc. Um, I don't know if the, this is a turning point, but certainly the, it, it, it warrants asking this question again. Alan, is the Sudanese military losing this war in in light of the fact that they no longer control most of the capital, they no longer have the the city's, um, the country's second largest city, they've lost most, if not all, of Darfur. Are they losing? 
Uh, yes, the army is losing the war. Uh, uh, to be honest, uh, the army has probably been losing the war for a while. Uh, they essentially have not won a major battle yet in this war. Um, I, I think the significance of this latest offensive and capture, um, and before they captured it, this was also just the first major offensive that the RSF had made east. Um, and so there was this question for a while, would the RSF essentially um, settle for a bit, consolidating the western part of Sudan, Khartoum, um, or would it push east and continue expanding this war into the rest of Sudan? Um, and they answered that question the last week. And then the second shock uh, for many Sudanese was how quickly they captured Wad Madani. Um, the army essentially didn't put up much of a fight and retreated very quickly. And it has many Sudanese who, who thought that this might might be a, a divided Sudan for a while. For a while now, thinking very much about what end games of the war might look like. Yeah, well, the question of a divided Sudan is definitely one we're going to be asking today. I, I want to bring in David Shin into this conversation. David, you're a former U.S. diplomat, deputy chief of mission in Sudan. When you look at this, the totality of it—eight months of war, little progress with political negotiations—and now this, the second largest city falling to the RSF. You think what? Well, I don't see very many grounds for any kind of progress on the negotiation front. I think that at this point, uh, the rapid support forces uh, probably believe that they have the upper hand and can, can continue to have victories. Uh, so even though there has been periodic discussion of reviving talks in Jeddah, uh, I don't expect much to come from that or any other possible talks for that matter. But what happened? Because I think it was eight, nine days ago now, one of the regional blocs, the regional bloc, IGAD, that is uh, handling one of the strands of negotiations here, seemed to have, I mean, I wouldn't say a breakthrough, but they, they, were, they were putting forward what looked like progress. They said, look, we've had both sides. Um, the general who leads the Sudanese armed forces, General Al-Burhan, and then they had um, uh, Mr. Dagalo on the phone, who leads the RSF. And both sides agreed, notionally, nominally, with the idea of a ceasefire. And now, eight days later, it doesn't look like a ceasefire is on the table at all. Well, I think part of the problem is uh, people are putting too much trust in what they're hearing from both sides. Uh, I haven't seen uh, much reason to believe anything that has come from either side since this conflict began. And I think this was another instance of uh, both sides saying what the uh, EGAD folks wanted to hear, uh, but they probably had no uh, intention of um, following through on it. Hamid, your thoughts on the various diplomatic efforts that we've seen, two, two main strands to it, avenues to it. One is EGAD, the regional bloc of Eastern African leaders, and the other is what we call the Jeddah talks, right? So IGAD is involved there as well, but it's hosted by Saudi Arabia. The U.S. is involved as well, and there are indirect talks there between the army and the RSF. So two parallel attempts at bringing a peaceful resolution to this conflict. Have they achieved anything? And before I speak to that, I would also like to add to the IGAD breakthrough, if we may call it that, uh, when they had an agreement from both uh, General Hamithi and General Burhan uh, to come to face-to-face -to -face, uh, talks. Uh, and very quickly, we had the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, which is captured by the Islamists, as we know, 
uh, making a statement suggesting that this is not going to happen, and, and they denounced uh, that Burhan is not going to meet uh, with, with, with General Hamidi, uh, which shows that, you know, when we're speaking with Burhan, uh, we're not speaking to the right people who are calling the shots within the army, particularly when it comes to uh, foreign relations and mediation and, and so on and so forth. Now, when you speak about the different mediation uh, platforms, uh, the EGAD or the U.S.-Saudi uh, platform, uh, the Jeddah-facilitated, uh, the U.S.-Saudi-facilitated platform in, in Jeddah, uh, I think one of the main flaws is that both platforms uh, do not bring uh, on board the right people. Uh, if, without the UAE, uh, it's very important, it's very difficult to put an end to this war. Uh, the UAE support to the Iraq support forces continues. Uh, as we know, it's not it's not uh, a secret anymore. Uh, there have been very, various confirmed reports about the continuous supplies that are going there. Uh, so without the main people who are backing both uh, military factions, South and the RSF, it, it, these uh, talks are going nowhere. Another big flow that both also uh, mediation uh, initiatives have kind of... Uh, overlooked is centering civilians uh, at these talks and to avoid having a military-to-military -military agreement that will only co uh, consolidate, you know, the military capture of, of Sudan, whether it's RSF or uh, SAF, and would kind of impede any uh, attempts uh, towards a more civilian-led kind of agreement uh, mm. that people were hoping for, uh, which would not put an end uh, to the war if, if you have just another consolidated uh, military capture of the country. I was going to ask about the civilian voice a little later, but since you bring it up, we might as well broach this now. Alan, are the civilians anywhere to be seen or heard in this conflict? Do they, does their voice count for anything in this, in this, uh, in, in what we've seen the last eight months? Uh, well, those are slightly two different questions. Um, they are to be seen and heard. In fact, they had a big meeting in Nairobi uh, this week, many of them. Of course, not all of them. There are many civilians. It's very difficult to, of course, get them all united. But there is there is a sort of core group uh, that has been formed that uh, met in Addis Ababa in October, and they're meeting in Nairobi now. It includes a number of former um, uh, former members of the Hamdok government, um, the last civilian government in Sudan, uh, including Hamdok himself um, and others. Um, I think the core challenge is less about that. Yes, it is hard to get them all united, um, but really the core challenge is uh, how do you end this war and create space for civilians to honestly matter again in the political dispensation of Sudan? Um, there can be a lot of effort made by civilians and their backers to get them organized, but unless someone finds a way of actually ending this war and halting Sudan's collapse, how that actually intersects with Sudan's politics moving forward, uh, you know, looks very difficult to tell. Right. So ending this war, that doesn't seem to be happening. What do you think is the next move for the RSF, uh, buoyed as they are by the capture of Wad Madani in the last few days? Uh, it's obvious that the RSF is going to keep pushing its military momentum, I think, until until and if it, eventually, if it finds resistance. Um, it has thought that it has held the upper hand since the beginning of this war. Um, um, but essentially, it's been unable to get the Sudanese army to sue for peace 
um, um, at all. The Sunnis' army has uh, its main position at negotiating talks has been that the RSF essentially withdraw from Khartoum, um, which is a very popular demand, but is one that the RSF isn't really uh, considering doing. So I think for now, they're going to push south the RSF, it looks like, um, and probably push towards the South Sudan border, towards the Ethiopian border. That would still leave the northern part of the country and the eastern part of the country still in the stronghold, uh, still under the control of the army and these are its main strongholds in a way um, that could open up then another standoff where potentially maybe there's an opportunity for a serious regional push to try to stop this war from going to the very brink and becoming an all-out uh, a battle at the end. But but diplomacy would have to rally because thus far we haven't seen that sort of collective approach yet. David, an, an operational military question, um, if you don't mind. Why is the RSF winning despite the fact that they do not have air superiority? Because there is one side that has warplanes and one side that doesn't. And the side that has the warplanes is the one of the armed forces. And that usually is the side that has the upper hand. Well, I think in the, in the case of the RSF, uh, you, if you look at Darfur, for example, they have a lot of local support there that uh, I'm not convinced the um, Sudan Armed Forces has in equal amounts. So I think Darfur mm -hmm. may be something of a special situation where they just are inherently stronger. Uh, Wad Madani is a different situation. And frankly, I'm a little surprised that the RSF has been able to move into Wad Madani as easily as they have. It strikes me perhaps as being more of a weakness of the Sudan armed forces than of the strength uh, of the rapid support forces. Uh, now, the RSF does have plenty of on-the-ground assistance uh, in terms of equipment uh, coming from the UAE, and, and uh, that apparently has not been a problem for it. But uh, it, it is a little bit puzzling that they have uh, moved as into Wad Madani as easily as they have. Hamid, how have the Sudanese reacted to the fall of Wad Madani, the fall to the RSF? I think people were really shocked. Uh, they did not expect the military to kind of just give in and, and, and retreat without putting up for a fight. I think uh, a lot of people uh, that, you know, traditionally supported the military uh, against the rapid support forces for the past uh, eight months or so, uh, kind of are now losing that faith in the military that they would be able to kind of... Uh, you know, defeat the rapid support forces uh, at any point. Uh, but I think one important thing that people are now realizing is that uh, the military has never, in this war particularly, but also throughout its history, put up a fight to protect civilians. They have been trying to protect their bases. They have been trying to protect their interests ever since the war started. But, you know, in all states, uh, in Darfur region and in Khartoum and other regions uh, and states where fighting has uh, taken place uh, since April 15th, the military did not try to protect civilians at any point. Uh, mm. And I think uh, that was a bit, you know, for people in the center spe uh, specifically, they did not see that as much uh, because, you know, we don't get as much news and reporting from Darfur uh, for many, you know, logistic and, and technical reasons. Uh, but now that seeing this uh, firsthand in Midani came as a shock. Uh, but I think for people who have been following this more closely, particularly what's happening in Darfur, uh, the military never tried to protect civilians. 
but the shock uh, in Medeni kind of made people realize this and see uh, what has been happening. A lot, obviously, are trying to kind of blame the military leadership and particularly Burhan uh, for this. Uh, but I think it's more systematic and uh, it's a, a problem within the military itself uh, and not necessarily the current leadership's problem. Alan, the RSF since the beginning of this conflict has been accused of rapes, looting, arbitrary killings, detention in the areas that they have um, conquered. What do we actually know? They deny this, by the way. They deny this. They say that if anybody within their forces is proven to have uh, carried out any of those crimes, that they would be held accountable. What do we actually know about the RSF's actions in the territories that they control? Uh, well, in many cases, they've been quite horrific. Um, there's been substantial investigations done, especially in the case of West Darfur, where it was very clear there were atrocities committed. Sometimes the RSF essentially says... Uh, that they didn't have control over these over the forces that that committed these atrocities. Um, there's obviously a lot of obfuscation going on. Also in Khartoum, there's been widespread looting. Um, you know, perhaps they'll try to deflect blame and say it wasn't them; it was other residents. Um, it's very clear the pattern of behavior, um, and it's clear that looting uh, was a means of sort of it recruiting and uh, and bringing in people to fight this war. One of the motivations has been essentially a transfer of wealth from Sudan's uh, middle class and elite to RSF fighters. Okay, let's address where this could go from here, David. If you, when you look at plausible scenarios for the future of this conflict, what do you think they are? Realistically, what could happen here? Well, one, uh, in, the, in the first instance and over the short term, I think you're going to have a, a continuing period of, of just chaos uh, in Sudan where no one is really in charge and uh, it's going to be very messy for several months to come. Uh, looking a little further into the future, possibilities would be a division of the country, which would be inherently unstable and would not be lasting, but it might provide uh, sort of temporary relief, possibly even a, a ceasefire for a period of time. Uh, or you could have a, a military victory at this uh, point, uh, more likely by the RSF than by the Sudan Armed Forces uh, but that would also be, I think, unstable because of the the way that the RSF has comported itself uh, so far uh, and has alienated so many Sudanese nationals by what it has done in areas that it has occupied. I just can't imagine that that would be an inherently uh, soluble kind of situation. Hamid. David mentioned the possible division of the country, and I think it's something that you referred to at the very top of the, of the show in your first answer. This is something that a lot of observers and, and I believe Sudanese now feel is a very real possibility, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you, you, we have been like seeing you know, a, a lot of patterns that allude to that. Uh, so, so ever since the war started, the military obviously was uh, kind of uh, ca has captured the state uh, institution, but we have seen the rap support forces creating parallel institutions uh, from, you know, aid commissions uh, to distribute aid, uh, even health facilities in different uh, states where they have the control uh, and uh, policing uh, as well, trying to uh, establish police forces in different places. 
now in Medini, uh, yesterday after they captured the city, they have asked uh, the you know traditional leaders or the native leaders of Medini to form a government. That obviously did not happen yet, but you know we have seen them trying to do that. But they obviously know that they cannot govern the country themselves. Uh, they can try to uh, rule it by force, but they know that they cannot govern it. Uh, and this is why, you know, if ever the country, uh, the entire country or parts and pockets of the country uh, fall under the control of the rapid support forces and they try to kind of go ahead and try to form governments and, and, and so on, that is not going to go through uh, very easily without resistance internally. And they wouldn't. It wouldn't be easy for them to get uh, acceptance uh, externally. So that would not, uh, mm. you know, result in any stabilization. Uh, so it it is it is a worry that people have been feeling. But I think now the support force is making advancements in in various uh, kind of uh, parts of the country. Uh, it's 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 clear that they're not settling uh, for whatever they have captured so far. They want to get more, uh, which is quite you know quite problematic. Alan, I saw you nodding your head in agreement for most of that answer. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but this is a very, very dangerous moment for Sudan, a very uncertain moment. The Sudanese state is collapsing. Uh, the RSF might be on a conquering drive, but that doesn't mean a state is being formed um, in its in its wake. Uh, these are very uncertain times. It's unclear uh, what exactly will be left of the Sudanese state and of Sudan when this is finished. Um, we could see the RSF continue to have victories, but essentially have local conflicts uh, erupt like wildfires um, around uh, because there is not the legitimacy uh, uh, to rule. So I think on the one hand, you have this war between these two main belligerents, but then there's this question of, of, of what follows, even if RSF continues to win. Um, it has shown no capacity to govern. It doesn't have legitimacy to. It's becoming increasingly a hodgepodge of local warlords in mm -hmm. militias, almost like a perpetual motion machine, which just has to keep moving, keep uh, conquering what happens to it. Uh, once this war finishes, um, it looks like a very bleak picture. David, is there any way, I mean, it is a very bleak picture, what I'm hearing from both uh, Hamid and Alan and, and prior to that by yourself, David, is there anything that can prevent this scenario from unfolding? Well, uh, if, if you had a, an epiphany take place uh, at the leadership level of the rapid support forces and the Sudan Armed Forces, possibly uh, you could come to at least a ceasefire and and some kind of ending of the conflict uh, that would not solve Sudan's problem, but it might stop the fighting. Uh, short of that, no, I don't I don't see any uh, any solution here. Uh, my analysis would be at least as bleak as those that we have already heard. Uh, and I I think this poses a huge problem for the international community also, which is going to be somewhat divided on its response. But um, certainly Western countries are not going to be anxious to support almost anything I can conceive of that will likely take place in Sudan in the coming months. Well, since, since none of you expect to see an epiphany, uh, really, on the side of the RSF or the Sudanese Armed Forces, could there be a more robust diplomatic effort than what we've seen over the last eight months, whether it's from Saudi Arabia, from the U.S., from Egypt, from the East African leaders, could there be something more? Uh, there, there could be a more robust effort, yes. Whether it would do any good or not is quite another matter. Uh, I, I'm just not convinced that um, 
either the uh, the rapid support forces or the Sudan armed forces have any interest in hearing anything about the mediation or peace talks from anyone at this point uh, based on on mm -hmm. any kind of leverage. Uh, I, I just don't see that leverage being there to force them to do what they need to do uh, to to support their own people. I mean, we have just about a minute left on the show. I'm wondering, just before we go, if you can sort of bring us the conversations that the Sudanese people are having when they follow, obviously, the trajectory of their country and where things are right now. It's quite depressing. I think everyone is kind of losing hope now. Uh, and and if, everyone, if anyone had, you know, more hope uh, that there would be a way out of this just before the fall of Medini, uh, now these... Uh, hopes are fading away. And I think it's particularly because, you know, we have seen that the military is not able uh, to kind of gain uh, any, 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 like to have any wins uh, militarily uh, and, and whatever political wins they've been having, they're losing now. And obviously the rapid support forces have been winning militarily, but losing politically. Uh, and in, on the other hand, mediation uh, has failed, uh, different mediation issues have failed uh, kind of, and uh, to bring a uh, both actors together or to uh, make them commit to a ceasefire. So that is uh, what people are worrying now is that maybe there is no way out of this and this will continue. And I think what people have been calling for is that, you know, at least what could happen now is for the international community to exert serious pressures for supporters uh, of both factions, but specifically the rapid support forces, uh, the UAE, to back off. And then things might get to somewhere where we, we could see a way out of it. But as long as the support is uh, coming in, there's no way to kind of make this uh, war end. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But I want to thank our guests, Hamid Khalafala, Alan Boswell, and David Shin. Thank you very much for your time today. This episode was produced by Mohamed Elaishi, Victoria Gatenby, Laurent Peter, and Gemma Harries. Studio sound was by Suraj Sankar. The program was edited by Alexander Otasevich, Zaina Bader, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we're looking at some of the stories that define 2023. From drones in Ukraine to the rise of ChatGPT. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.